Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good weekend, and it's good to be on the air with you guys as always. But then again, I don't ever recall a time when that was the opposite. It's always been a pleasure to be on the air sharing with you all what I enjoy most. History. Not just history, but history that's relevant, history that's essential, history that at times has been forgotten and needs to be retold. And here I am being able to do that with you all, my faithful 101 listeners. Here we are discussing again, signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution by Denise Kiernan and Joseph D. Agnes. So I'm sure many of you are wondering, what direction are we going in in this episode? Well, here's our leadoff bonus question for you guys. Were there any states whom sent less than two delegates to attend the Constitutional Convention? The only reason I ask that is because I know in these last three, um, not so much the last three, but the podcasts I've done on New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, we found out that each of those states sent two delegates. Well, you've got to start somewhere. But did any of the states send less than two delegates? The answer is yes. There was one state, and that was New York, which ended up sending a delegate who um, has not already, who not already, how do I say it, a delegate who um, already has made a name of himself from having served in the American Revolutionary War, but he will also be one of those men whom will be a leading forefather in the near distant future who will play a role on the national level. Does anybody want to take a guess at what his name is? I think most of you all probably do know his name. That one delegate from New York who went to Philadelphia in 1787 to attend the Constitutional Convention was none other than Mr. Alexander Hamilton. So, New York is the only one of the states who sent less than two delegates. Did New York have other delegates who could have gone? Yes, but they were very, um, what do you call it? They weren't all gung-ho on this um, new, not so much new constitution, but they weren't gung they. They really weren't gung-ho on revising the Articles of Confederation 100%. Well, the bottom line is New York sent someone, and they sent the right person in none other than Mr. Alexander Hamilton. Do we know uh, what United States dollar bill he's on? Uh, For those of you internationally who are listening, let me ask you this. We know George Washington's on the $1 bill. We know Abraham Lincoln's on the $5 bill. Of course, they don't make $2 bills anymore, but uh, when they did, um, Thomas Jefferson was on those, uh, dollar, was on the $2 bill. Matter of fact, I have one for, um, for uh, collector's items, and I, know, I don't know how much it's worth, but I know it's probably got to be worth a lot of money. We know Andrew Jackson's on the uh, $20 bill. So... Half of 20, that's 10. Okay, so Alexander Hamilton is on the $10 bill. So, what do what can we learn about Alexander Hamilton um, 
from his early years as a young man. Well, true or false question, was Alexander Hamilton born in the United States? True or false? Does anybody, do some of you think it's true or do some of you think it's false? The answer is false. He was born in what's known as Charlestown, being the capital of the island of Nevis, located within the confines of the Leeward Islands, or what we know now as the West Indies. He was born, um, some historians say that he was born either on January 11th of 1755 or on January 11th of 1757. However, um, his parents were not a married couple when he was born. So, sadly, he was born out of wedlock. He was um, described as a, ba as a bastard child. I know that doesn't sound nice, but that's how they um, described um, those situations back in those days when a man and a woman um, produced a child out of wedlock and they were not married. Hamilton's mother was of uh, French um, descent, and his father was of Scottish descent. Did Alexander Hamilton lose both parents before he turned the age before turning age 15? Yes, he did. He was left alone by the age of 13. Now he does have a brother, but there again, his brother uh, was also born out of wedlock as well. So. You know, here, here is Alexander Hamilton at the age of 13. He's alone. He's got to think to himself, hey, where does my future take me? Am I going to sit here and have pity for myself, or am I going to make something out of my life? Well, around the age of 17, he uh, gets apprentice to a local merchant, and he's still living in the West Indies. Besides being apprenticed to a local merchant, what other unique talents did young Alexander Hamilton possess? Well, it turns out that he was an avid reader, and he also had strong writing skills. So is it fair to say that not only by being an avid reader, including solid writing skills, that that could lead to um, perhaps a successful journalistic career, or could it lead to something... Um, more um, unexpected, but for the um, right directions, or rather all for the right reasons? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, it could lead to anything uh, possible for young Alexander Hamilton, as long as he's going to be able to set his mind to it. In 1772, he wrote a letter about a hurricane that struck in the Leeward Islands, or what's around the West Indies, and this was a very powerful hurricane that did a lot of damage. This article got a lot of uh, recognition. A lot of people noticed it. There was one man by the name of Nicholas Kruger, who was, who was one of Hamilton's bosses. Nicholas Kruger went above and beyond to raise money that would give Alexander Hamilton better opportunities in another world and where would be where would this other world be how about america 
land of opportunity. So Nicholas Kruger raised enough money to give Hamilton the opportunity to leave the West Indies to come to America. So we often have to remind ourselves that um, those who um, were living overseas, like in the West Indies, for example, or even in Europe, uh, Thomas Paine, for example, um, not to get off track here, but I just read um, Harlow Giles Unger's uh, Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for Independence, a phenomenal read. I learned a great deal about Thomas Paine that I didn't know before, because really the only thing I knew about him was the pamphlet he published being Common Sense. That was a wide success, not just only in the United States, but internationally. But Thomas Paine just so happened to meet Benjamin Franklin when Benjamin Franklin was in England. And what did ben Benjamin Franklin do for Thomas Paine? He raised enough money to give Thomas Paine the opportunity to start a new life in America. So we have to remember that people just didn't wake up one morning and say, well, I want to leave my country and go to America. That's not how it worked. They had to have connections. And when you have connections, that leads to other things that um, will uh, ensure that, that something long-term uh, can uh, lead to uh, better potentials or better potential, rather, in a different setting. So if Thomas Paine was able to um, have a great connection in Benjamin Franklin, then Alexander Hamilton had a unique connection with Nicholas Kruger. Now, yes, Nicholas Kruger may not have been Benjamin Franklin, but Nicholas Kruger went above and beyond to ensure that young Alexander Hamilton had a better life in another country where there was more opportunities to grow. October of 1772, Alexander Hamilton officially arrived by boat to America into Boston, but he eventually settles in New York City. And, it, and it's just so ironic that he took up temporary lodging with a, with a future Revolutionary War statesman and a future who also not only was a Revolutionary War statesman, but, was, but would go about being a future signer to the U.S. Constitution. This man hailed from New Jersey. His name was William Livingston. So it does, there again, it does pay to have some uh, good connections, not only for the present, but for down the road. Connections are vital. They were vital then. They still can be today. But it's all about how you make the most out of the connections that you have um, obtained, not just in the present, but for the future. So, um, my next question to you all is this. What did Alexander Hamilton begin doing at the age of 18? So, if, if he was born in 1755, then he would be about 18 years of age in 1773. I've always been told that he was born in 1755. That's just my take. But does anybody want to take a guess what he could have been doing at the age of 18? Did he start writing pamphlets? Did he start making speeches in support of the Boston Tea Party movement? Or C, did he open up his own 
printing press uh, shop? Uh, the answer is B. Choice B, that is, he started making speeches in support of the Boston Tea Party movement. What happened in December of 1773, folks? A reminder, the Boston Tea Party movement went in full gear. Um, members of the Tea Party decided to take it upon themselves to dress up as Indians um, and then uh, get a hold of the ships that... Um, that were uh, that belonged to the East India Tea Company, or the East India Company that uh, had the uh, tea in the harbor. Well, the um, the Bostonians, rather I should say, seized those ships and dumped over three hundred chests of tea into the Charles River. So Alexander Hamilton would have been supporting this movement. Does Alexander Hamilton go to college, folks? Well, the answer is yes, he does go to college. But does he go but where would he go have gone to college? We must keep in mind in 1775 there are not a whole lot of uh, choices for college in colonial America. As a matter of fact, there's only one college down south. And it just so happens to be in Virginia, William and Mary. Of course, William and Mary would have by then produced um Alums like Thomas Jefferson, uh, perhaps uh, John Marshall. Of course, he will. Thomas Jefferson's already studied law under George Wythe. John Marshall will eventually do the same. So will James Monroe. Uh, just to name a few uh, prominent um, leaders from uh, present and uh, future leaders from Virginia. But where does Hamilton go? Does he go to Harvard? Does he go to um, King's College, or does he go to um, Yale? He attends King's College, which is now Columbia University. But his studies are disrupted. They are disrupted for a good reason, because in 1775, the same year that shots were heard round the world at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, Alexander Hamilton himself takes up arms and joins the New York Volunteer Militia Company known as the Corsicans. Hamilton had a very distinguished um, career as a um, soldier. He fought at the battles of Long Island despite the New York campaign being a disastrous one or rather a debacle for the Americans but he fought valiant, valiantly there. He fought at White Plains which is um, just on the outskirts of uh, Newburgh and West Point. And it just so happens that young Alexander Hamilton was at the Battle of Trenton, the battle that pretty much saved the American Revolution from going completely extinguished. Hamilton was a part of the um, mission on those uh, Durham boats that crossed the Delaware River over into Trenton. Hamilton also fought at the Battle of Princeton, New Jersey, shortly after Trenton. It wasn't so much just Trenton, it was also Princeton. Those two consecutive battles that turned the tide for the Americans in terms of giving us new meaning, a broader light, and a sense of respect, not just amongst the Continental Army, but Americans in general who had renounced their allegiance to the crown and realizing now that, hey, 
not only do we have something good to feel about in from a militaristic approach, but our document, the Declaration of Independence, which renounces our allegiance, a.k.a. our separation from England, that too has greater meaning now. Now, come 1777, just after Princeton, what major assignment comes to young Alexander Hamilton's way? He becomes one of George Washington's aides-de-camp, or rather, chief staff aide. Now Hamilton is in Washington's inner circle. He may not have the same military rank, but he has become a chief, one of Washington's chief staff aides. Washington has placed a lot of trust in Hamilton. So what do you think some of Alexander Hamilton's duties might have been? How about from one from handling letters to Congress to drafting many of Washington's orders and letters to becoming engaged in high-level tasks such as intelligence gathering along with serving as an emissary. So Hamilton is really in that inner circle. You can almost say like he's the equivalent of a Secret Service agent of sorts being in the inner circle that protects the President of the United States. Of course, there's no such thing as a Secret Service during that time, but being one of Washington's aides to camp or one of his chief staff aides, he is in the elite uh, network. And, uh, and I think it's fair to say that very few men would have been able to have been considered chief staff aides to Washington. Washington picked those people very carefully. Why not? Because the last thing the general needs is anyone betraying him. He doesn't need any more drama than he's already had to deal with. And where do you think most of his drama has been coming from? From Congress. Remember, folks, you know, yes, 56 men did sign their lives away by declaring their separation from England, but it didn't mean that even after the Declaration of Independence was signed that there was still tension amongst those who weren't sure if Washington really was the true um, commander-in-chief that needed to be in this post long-term. Let's just keep that in mind. Not, everything's, not everything was rosy even when, while we're still fighting this war with the uh, greatest empire in the world. Well, Hamilton served as a commander to a battalion of light infantry companies from New York and Connecticut starting in late July 1781. And it just so happens, folks, that he also commanded a light infantry battalion unit at Yorktown, Virginia, which is probably about an hour from where I live, and Hamilton was responsible for helping overtake redoubts, or what were known as fortifications, redoubts 9 and 10, that resulted five days later with General Lord Charles Cornwallis's surrender of Yorktown on October 19, 1781. So Hamilton, yes, he was an officer, but he was just no ordinary officer. He knew how to take command, and when he knew how to take command, it often it got results, and it got results for the right direction, in the right direction, which obviously pleased Washington so much that Washington didn't want to turn his back on this young fella. You know, Washington wouldn't have wanted to have turned his back on anyone in terms of um, not um, 
losing trust in someone, but if you wanted to earn George Washington's trust, you had to keep your word and you had to go above and beyond to perform your duties so that Washington knew that you really were the real thing. You know, don't turn your back on the general. Was Alexander Hamilton already married prior to the British surrender at Yorktown? Yes, he got married in 1780 to Elizabeth Schuyler, whose family was well-connected politically in New York, which enhanced Hamilton's access to power. It's one thing to get married, but when you marry someone whose um, family is well-connected politically, socially, economically, think about how many advantages that would give you, not just short-term, but long-term. And having access to power, while yes, that can be a scary thing, because, you know, as we all know, history has told us that people from all walks of life have, have abused their power, and it's led them down a bad road to uh, self-destruction. Now, I can tell you this much, folks. There is a county in New York State, in the fin which is in New York's Finger Lakes region. Uh, when my wife and I vacationed there four years ago, we visited Schuyler County, uh, which is in the... Um, which is uh, where Seneca Lake is, part of Seneca Lake is located in uh, Schuyler County. And there is a unique village or um, hamlet, whatever you want to call it. It's known as um, Watkins Glen, which is at the southern tip of Seneca Lake. So Schuyler County is named after Elizabeth Schuyler's family. Her father was a uh, general in the American Revolutionary War. I believe his name was William Schuyler. And there is a town just on the outskirts of Albany, the capital, uh, known as uh, Schuylerville. So any time you hear those names of Schuylerville in uh, Schuyler County, uh, think of the Schuyler family and their, um, and their uh, powerful connections, powerful political connections, that is, in New York. And their son-in-law being none other than Mr. Alexander Hamilton. After stepping down from military service in March of 1782, what did uh, Hamilton pursue next? Well, let me ask you this. Did he become a lawyer? Did he become a doctor? Or did he become um, your typical businessman? Well, the answer is choice A. He became a lawyer, passed the bar exam, and he set, sets up a law practice in New York City but that's not uh, all he does, folks. He also goes about serving as a representative for the Congress of the Confederation, which met in New York. While this might seem like a very distinguished uh, post, and it is, Hamilton sees things that just don't look right. Well, what do you think Alexander Hamilton sees that isn't right? Well, for one, he knows that conflict's inevitable, but how about the current government system? Is it fair to say that Alexander Hamilton saw flaws to the Articles of Confederation? Yes. He saw where the national government lacked such powers as being able to raise and maintain an army, navy, to even being able to be limited in what it could do to fortify um, fortify itself against um, an invasion from abroad. 
And given that Alexander Hamilton has served in the American Revolutionary War, this is a very serious thing. And if that's not serious enough to him, he also sees where the national government can't even um, tax. It can't even find ways to generate revenue. So all of that tells him this, that, hey, if something's not done soon, we could have anarchy. He's, he, he's definitely on to something, folks. So in 1783, uh, Hamilton steps down from the Congress of Confederation, and in 1784, he establishes the Bank of New York, which still exists today and is one of the oldest um, banks in America. Isn't it fair to say that Alexander Hamilton does have a lot of financial smarts? I would say so. And it's also during this time that he helps restore King's College, a.k.a. Columbia Universities, whose doors had been closed since 1776. Well, why do you think the college might have closed? Well, because there's war. And it's not just war, but there's war in New York. What if the college had remained open? It's fair to say that the British could have uh, obtained access to the college and turned it into a um, military headquarters camp for them. After all, the British had pretty much annihilated the Americans in New York. Can you imagine if they had access to a college and what they could have done to that? Not just main established a headquarters post, but who knows, maybe even burned it. So Hamilton was... Um, kind enough to go above and beyond to help restore this college so that it didn't collapse altogether. Does anybody know or want to know what convention Hamilton himself attended in 1786? Was it a political convention? Was it a economic convention? Um, was it a convention that focused on political, economic, and social affairs. Well, it was really a um, political convention that he attended, and it was known as the Annapolis Convention of, seven, in seven, of 1786. The purpose of this convention was to reform existing trade policies. Okay? The national government doesn't have any trade policies, folks, but what's awkward enough is that all 13 states being independent entities of one another, have taken it upon themselves to where each one has its own policies regarding trade. Whereas the national government lacks all authority to regulate trade between the states altogether. And let me ask you all, let me ask you guys this question. Did this convention produce a lot of people in attendance. Do you think more than 20 people came? Do you think more than 50 came? Or do you think it was less than 20? I hate to tell you this, folks, but the answer is C. Choice C, less than 20 delegates attended. Hamilton was only one of 12 delegates from five states. New York, where he, where he hails from, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Virginia. I'm glad Virginia sent some representatives because 
Virginia is the largest of the 13 states still, folks. So I've said before from previous uh, podcast series on Virginia, but I'll say it again. If Virginia is the largest state, not only would she have a lot to gain, but she's also got a lot to lose. So if Virginia is not in the equation with this, then that's not a good sign. So Hamilton is just one of 12 delegates whom attends this convention. And while a whole lot didn't get accomplished because there was such a small turnout, the need for reform, or let alone constitutional reform, didn't go away, in large part due to rebellions taking place. How about that infamous one from Massachusetts that you all, whom were with me from the previous podcast, um, Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle. Yeah, Shays' Rebellion that lasted from August 1786 to February 1787, about six to seven months. So if you have rebellious activity going on in, in one state over a six to seven month span, and while yes, that was uh, put down, who's not to say that future rebellions that take place may not end up with results that, um, how do I say it? It's one thing for rebellion to take place, but if the right personnel are not there at the right time to put it down, like uh, General Benjamin Lincoln, he and his uh, group of, um, what do you call it, um, military men, they had it, they came in enough time to, um, take over the Springfield Arsenal to keep it out of the hands of the insurgents. The Springfield Arsenal didn't belong to the state of Massachusetts. That was federal government property. Daniel Shays and his followers, of course, yes, everybody thinks Daniel Shays started the rebellion, but he didn't. He was just a uh, former Revolutionary War veteran who um, did upset people not only in the state of Massachusetts, but elsewhere because he... Uh, traded in um, the, a sword that the Marquis de Lafayette gave him for his uh, heroism in the war, all because Shays was was uh, struggling to pay debts, and he felt that by, by um, trading in the sword to pay off debts that would take care of everything, he was still in debt, but he didn't... But the bottom line is the state of Massachusetts... Um, the state of Massachusetts did not do its part to um, look after those whom had uh, fought in the war and also really were not uh, paying attention to the, to the needs of those in the western part of the state. In other words, the Boston elite had ignored them. But the bottom line is that uh, Shays' rebellion was so bad that, you know, it's, it's time to start looking for greater reform. In other words, the national government isn't a lot, does not have any authority to be able to put down rebellions. All of this concentration is in the hands of the states. So, whom um, sees to it that Alexander Hamilton gets chosen as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention from the state of New York? How about his father-in-law, Philip Schuyler? Well, while Hamilton is in Philadelphia, does he speak his mind? Yes, he does. What did he favor? 
he favored a strong national government. He firmly believed that only the wealthy and the well-educated were capable of running the government. Why do you believe Hamilton was in favor of the, having the wealthy and the well-educated running the government? It's not so much because they have a lot of money. It's not so much because maybe they went to Harvard or Yale. It's because, in his eyes, men whom had great knowledge about affairs had daily involvement. Men who had, or rather I should say, men whom had great knowledge about daily affairs had daily involvement that because they had daily involvement in these affairs, they could better sell and offer legislative ideas to people they represented. So in other words, if you knew a great deal about the mercantile industry and you had experience in that industry, you would work there for, say, all of your life or for a good part of your life. If you want to go to Congress and you have that knowledge, then yes, you can share that. I mean, you can represent your people or people, that is, over that um, subject, but in other, but in Hamilton's eyes, if you if you're not well educated, then how can you be knowledgeable on on an assortment of topics and expect to be um, rep, be uh, sent to Congress? So, in other words, it's all about in his eyes, it's all about the knowledge you have on an assortment of subjects and what you can um, give to um, the people who whom have elected you to represent them on their behalf. Did Hamilton propose ideas at the Constitutional Convention that favored a monarchy-style government? Believe it, he, believe it or not, folks, he did. He advocated having one branch of the legislative body serve for life. And what branch of the, of the legislative body do you think that would have been? I would, I would think that would be the Senate. And the same would be for the chief executive. So in other words, he would have been okay with the president serving, um, what do you call it, a life term. But in this case, he would have been all right with presidents, what do you call it, uh, serving their country for 20 to 30 years. Kind of like how kings rule their countries in Europe for like 30 or 40 years, but isn't it fair to say that George Washington fought a war as commander of the Continental Army to keep kings out of America? Absolutely. Hamilton served on the Committee of Style and Arrangement, which oversaw the establish which oversaw the the establishment of the Constitution's final language, or rather wording. That's a, a prestigious committee right there. After all, we, we should keep in mind that, um, that the Constitution, like the Declaration of Independence, probably went through multiple drafts and revisions. Of course, the Declaration of Independence underwent 86 revisions. I'm not sure exactly how many the Constitution went or underwent, but, it, but I have no doubts that it underwent more than um, five revisions at best. Besides um, signing the Constitution, what other document in 1787 did Hamilton himself heavily contribute to? Does anybody 
know about the Federalist Papers? 85 essays whose writings also included the works done by James Madison of Virginia and John Jay of New York. You know, John Jay is an interesting uh, character. Um, he would go on to serve in the United States Supreme Court. He didn't. Um, he wasn't um, chosen as a delegate from New York to attend the Constitutional Convention, but he is quite a uh, powerhouse player, to say the least. To say the least, rather. Um, I do know that there is a um, village in New York State, just north of Lake Placid. Um, when my wife and I went there 11 years ago for our five-year anniversary, there is a little village um, known as uh, Jay, New York, which is named after John Jay. And not far by is uh, Franklin Falls, which is um, which I believe is connected to uh, Benjamin Franklin. But yes, uh, Alexander Hamilton, I know that he wrote about, I believe, about 51 of the uh, 85 essays. Uh, Madison wrote 29, and while Jay only wrote five, the bottom line is all three of these men did something very unique and wrote a an assortment of essays. And... The essays themselves, folks, were based upon each man's area of knowledge. John Jay focused on foreign relations, and John Jay would be res be responsible um, in in a, in a few years after Washington's presidency begins. John Jay would go about uh, negotiating a treaty with England, so his foreign relations um, experience or expertise is very crucial here. James Madison focused on the history of republics and confederacies. As for Hamilton, he focused on governmental branches that were relevant to his needs, such as executive and judicial branches. So these papers, or I should say essays, were essential to winning over the minds of undecided delegates at the New York State Constitutional Convention which ratified the document by a razor-thin vote of 30 to 27 on July 26th of 1788. You know, think about it. One month earlier, on uh, June 21st of 1788, New Hampshire was the ninth state that ratified the Constitution, and as a result of New Hampshire's ratification, that made the Constitution a legal existing document. So if it hadn't been for the publication of these uh, essays, aka the Federalist Papers, I'm not so sure that New York would have been able to have ratified the Constitution. But it did so on July 26, 1788 as the 11th state that did so. Interesting, New Hampshire was the 9th state. Massachusetts was um, 6th Connecticut was uh, the fifth state, and now we have New York as the 11th. Interesting um, sequential order, uh, to say the least, uh, I would have to say, but, um, but sometimes the order and how uh, things get done is a story unto itself. Would Alexander Hamilton serve in President Washington's cabinet? Yes. He served as the nation's first treasury secretary. He favored the national government, taking over state debts from the Revolutionary War to wanting a national bank. Isn't it fair to say, though, that 
Alexander Hamilton's idea of a national bank might be like the equivalent of a modern-day Federal Reserve system? Absolutely so. Of course, the Federal Reserve as we know it today uh, didn't come into play until 1913 when uh, Woodrow Wilson was president. As a matter of fact, uh, a prominent Virginia um, politician uh, who served in the United States Senate for a number of years, as a matter of fact, uh, the family was known as the Glass family, and there is a high school in Lynchburg, Virginia, where my dad's originally from, and he attended high school there called E.C. Glass, named after um, Edwin um, Christian Glass, either Edwin Christian Glass or Edwin uh, Carlisle Glass. Uh, but it turns out that um, a man by the name of Carter Glass, U.S. Senator Carter Glass, was responsible for um, introducing legislation that helped create the modern-day Federal Reserve System. And 20 years later, in 1933, um, he oversaw he helped oversee the creation of uh, FDIC, or what we know now as Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So, um, Alexander Hamilton would be very happy to know that we have a modern, that we have a Federal Reserve system in play today. But it is fair to say that he was the one that, um, by introducing a national bank, that was the earliest version of a modern day Fed, of a Federal Reserve system as we know it today. Did Hamilton, for all of his uh, accomplishments from a financial perspective, as well as uh, serving as Washington's Treasury Secretary, to having a good uh, military career, did Alexander Hamilton have any political enemies? Yes. Who exactly would be his most number one enemy? Would it have been James Madison? Would it have been James Monroe? Would it have been Thomas Jefferson? You know, I just named all three of those choices are, are men from Virginia. Well, it couldn't be James Madison because he had, he had, I would say he had good rapport with him over these Federalist Papers. Yes, he would have known James Monroe from the Revolutionary War because Monroe himself fought. You know, Monroe and Hamilton both were at Trenton and they both fought at some other battles together. Monroe was serving in the American Revolutionary War up until, um, I want to say, uh, 1778 uh, or 1779, but the last battle he fought at was at uh, Monmouth Courthouse in Monmouth, New Jersey. So that really leaves us with only one other answer, or one other choice as the answer. Thomas Jefferson. That is Alexander Hamilton's biggest enemy. How so? Well, Hamilton is the leader of the Federalist Party. Thomas Jefferson is an anti-Federalist, or he, he represents what is either known as the Democratic-Republican Party, or some people would refer to him as a Jeffersonian Republican. Of course, you know, as I said earlier, Hamilton believed that the wealthy and the well-educated should be running the government. And if that's the case, then he obviously wants a strong, central, powerful government. Thomas Jefferson wants a weak central government where power wasn't to be placed solely into the hands of the wealthy or the well-educated. He believed that the greater power lied with the farmers, or rather an, an agrarian economy. 
But if you think about it, Virginia being the largest state, it's in the South, the Southerners prefer an agrarian style economy, whereas the New Englanders are more of a mercantile based economy. This is where sectionalism is coming into play. There were other reasons why Jefferson and Hamilton didn't get along. Uh, it, it got pretty bad to the point, okay, Jefferson uh, is the Secretary of State, Hamilton's Secretary of the Treasury. It got so bad to the point where, it, where both of those men drove George Washington nuts. Jefferson resigned, I think, in 1793 or 1794. Um, Hamilton resigned just before Jefferson did. But the two of them simply just butted heads all the time. You know, if that's bad enough, I can tell you this, that Hamilton himself struggled politically when it came to building rapport, not only from within his own party, being the Federalist Party, but, um, but I can give you a good example of, what, of just how bad the, his struggle was in terms of building rapport within his own party. How about the uh, presidential election of 1800? John Adams, he's already our president. He's running for re-election. Now, we have to remember at this time, folks, that the president and the vice president were not on the same ticket. That all changes um, in 1804. And um, after that time, the president and the vice president are no longer on separate tickets. They are both on the same ticket, same party ticket. But Alexander Hamilton, going into this election of 1800, is it fair to say that Alexander Hamilton and John Adams are not the best of friends? That is correct. They may be of the same party, but just because you're of the same political party, it doesn't mean that you're best friends or, or good friends, period. Hamilton and Adams were never close, but yet Hamilton constantly interfered to the point where he went behind John Adams' back and stabbed him, said things about him that were very, very uncalled for, and it was so bad that John Adams lost re-election. He lost re-election in large part because of what Alexander Hamilton had done. Alexander Hamilton was a smart man when it came to when it came to how the government should be operated from a financial system in terms of a national bank and all. But how I, I hate to say this, Alexander Hamilton, after having read about him in the book Signing Their Rights Away, Hamilton found fault with everyone. And everyone he it's not so much that he found fault with everyone but he found fault with everyone he came across including his own political party being the federalists so in other words it wasn't just the opposition he was at fault with it was everyone and that's a sad that that to me is part of his downfall if he hadn't stabbed john adams in the back if he had not done some other things who knows Maybe he would have lived a little bit longer. And that leads me to my next question. Did Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr have hatred for one another? Yes. 
These two men repeatedly stabbed one another in the back multiple times where both men would end up challenging one another to a duel. But it was Hamilton's smear tactics which in the end cost Aaron Burr his chances of becoming president in 1804. Jefferson and Burr had been constantly deadlocked in a ballot tie, and eventually the ballot tie was broken, giving Jefferson um, the presidency. But the bottom line is this. Alexander Hamilton kept stabbing Burr in the back so much that it infuriated Burr to where Burr decided to take to pretty much say to Alexander Hamilton, hey, I've had it with you, and we're going to resolve this matter like men, but we're going to do so by dueling. Is it fair to say that dueling was a way to resolve political indifferences? Yes, even if it meant shooting the opposition to, opposition to where he might not have uh, lived. Scary to think, folks, but this was a way to resolve problems. And I learned some time back that dueling dated back to the Middle Ages or the medieval times in Europe. Well, I can tell you this much from what I know about dueling. What do you think would have happened if you didn't show up? You would have been ridiculed. You would never have heard the end of it. People would have called you all kinds of names, from chicken, wimp, scaredy cat. But what if you did show up, but, uh, but disposed of your bullets by, uh, by having them land to the ground? What would people think of you there? They would actually give you credit for at least having showing for at least having showed up, by uh, uh, by undoing your pistol and dropping your bullets to the ground. It just meant that you weren't ready to um, you weren't ready to compete that day, but you at least had the decency to show up and say to the other fella, "Hey, I'm not afraid to still take you on." July eleventh, eighteen o four. Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr met on the west bank of the Hudson River in what's now called Weehawken, New Jersey. Burr's shot hit Hamilton in the lower abdomen above his right hip. July 12th, the next day, Alexander Hamilton died from his wound at the age of 49. Aaron Burr was charged with murder, but never went to trial for it. As for Alexander Hamilton, he would be one of two signers to the U.S. Constitution whom died via dueling. Well, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Alexander Hamilton was a smart man in terms of how he saw the government from a financial standpoint. Yes, he um, had a distinguished military career, serv service career, serving as uh, one of General Washington's uh, chief staff aides. Hamilton was a good Treasury Secretary, but yet Hamilton's, I think it's fair to say that Alexander Hamilton's it, problem was that it wasn't so much that he found fault with himself, found fault with others, but perhaps maybe it's fair to say that Hamilton might have acted as if he was the victim all the time. It is fair to say that even our, some of our forefathers had a lot of personal insecurities 
But at the same time, I can't say that it is fair that Hamilton did accomplish a great deal. I think he would be in awe today knowing that there is a Federal Reserve System. Not just in Washington, D.C., but you have a Federal Reserve Bank out in San Francisco, California, Denver, Colorado, Richmond, Virginia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Atlanta, Georgia, Dallas, Texas. Uh, there's one, in, I believe, in Kansas City or St. Louis. And he would be happy to know that there are federal that we have a Federal Reserve System. After all, he wanted a strong national bank, and his national bank um, brainchild was the early precursor to our modern-day Federal Reserve System. So, you know, yes, he may have met a tragic death, but could his tragic death have been avoided if he had not said everything that was on his mind? Perhaps so. Could his tragic death have been avoided if he had not gone around finding fault with people, especially ruining John Adams's chances of getting reelected in 1800? Perhaps so. And it is fair to say that Hamilton was responsible for bringing down his own party, because by the time 1820 comes around, the Federalist Party will have completely died out. As a matter of fact, John Adams, when he won election in 1796, he served as our second president from 1797 to 1801, but he would also be the last Federalist president to ever hold office. But there again, we might have Alexander Hamilton to thank for not letting for not seeing to it that another Federalist um, candidate ever won high won election to the high office. So all in all, Alexander Hamilton accomplished a lot, but he also was his worst enemy. But I can say that we do still owe him some gratitude of debt from a financial standpoint. Well, thank you again, as always, for letting me uh, be on the air with you guys, and you all are wonderful listeners. Um, if you know of people who want to come to Anchor Podcasts, tell them to come, because it's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. I look forward to, be to being back on the air again with you all soon. Take care for now, and stay safe.